Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. Hello, my name is Greg Monteith. This episode concerns self-deceit, and in that regard, it carries on from the two previous episodes. Specifically, this episode offers more concrete examples of self-deceit in the context of evangelical Christianity. I will not, however, be re-summarizing self-deceit or explaining how it functions. For a summary or explanations of self-deceit, I would direct you to the opening 10 minutes of the previous episode, episode number 174. Having walked through one example in the previous episode of how an approach that is self-deceit aware can reveal that a popular evangelical belief is held because it is useful and self-serving, I want to analyze another popular evangelical belief, as well as several church situations, all using the same perspective of self-deceit. My second example, then, involves the popular evangelical belief that God's will is, quote, always being done, end quote, or that God is always in control. This belief is widespread, despite such obvious biblical indications to the contrary, as Paul's writings about the principalities and powers, the broad understanding that God's kingdom as already inaugurated through Jesus, but God's full reign is not yet here, and the disciples' prayer, often called the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray that God's will should be done on earth as it is in heaven. If this were already the case, then Jesus would surely know, and there would be no reason to teach the disciples to ask for it. In addition, there are practical experiential indications to the contrary. Particularly, if God's will is always being done on earth, then this means that God's will is always being done in my life. And because doing God's will and sinning, if you will, are mutually exclusive, this would indicate that I do not sin at all. It's difficult to imagine anyone who is a Christian actually believing that she or he does nothing to contravene right relationship with God, herself, or with others. So given but a few minutes reflection, one would think that even the most ardent supporter of this view would pause to reconsider its validity, if not reject it outright. But in numerous conversations with those holding this view, I have never seen any such person even hesitate when presented with this evidence. Indeed, I have instead listened to them offer the most contorted logic and have been presented with counter-arguments laden with contradictions, double standards, and pure foolishness, all in support of this view. Why? If this belief is at least quite questionable, if not outright wrong, yet evidence and strong argument do not avail in any way to change the views of those who hold it, then this view is obviously not held for its truthfulness. If this is the case, then what other reason is there for such staunch adherence in the face of such contrary evidence? To answer this, we turn to a method of investigation best suited to reveal hidden reasons or motives, a self-deceit-aware approach, we could call it. For example, we ask, first, what are the benefits of holding such a belief? Second, who or what is served, or what needs or concerns are met by holding such a belief? And third, what is the result from the perspective of the holder versus the perspective of others? The first benefit of holding such a belief is that it confers clarity 
in the face of confusing information, confidence in the face of complicated problems, and serenity in the face of overwhelming suffering. For if God is really fully and always in control, and or if God's will is always being done, then whatever situation that arises is actually just as it should be, because it's just as God desires it to be. The second benefit is increased focus on and time for what's really important, serving God. For if everything is how God wishes it to be, then Christians need not spend time and energy considering and tackling insurmountable problems. Instead, holding this view means that there effectively are no problems. The third benefit is that this belief coheres with certain prominent theologies to the extent that emphasizing God's ongoing full control also means endorsing God's sovereignty. Further, and as with our first example, this belief cannot be disproven. Any and every situation can be claimed to be taking place according to the will and control of God. As such, this belief requires no corroboration, no reevaluation, or even explanation, which means that holding this belief requires little or no energy, and so it's relatively easy to maintain it in perpetuity. The result is that the holder of this belief portrays and views herself as someone whose trust in God's sovereign power allows her to be clear, confident, and serene in the face of some of the most confusing, complicated, and overwhelming aspects of human existence. Yet once again, this clarity, confidence, and serenity both originate in idolatry through effectively claiming to be perfect, because holding this view amounts to claiming that God's will is always being done in my life, and are perpetuated through idolatry by effectively claiming some hidden knowledge that overrides both what the Bible and experience indicate. First, that God's will is not always being done. Second, that sovereignty is not God's foremost characteristic. And third, that doing whatever appears to maximize God's sovereignty is not the Christian's overriding concern. Next, due to his awareness that God's sovereignty is the most important knowledge worth possessing, the holder portrays himself as currently completely focused on the Christian's highest priority, serving God, even to the point of being undistracted by the concerns and problems of our world. Yet this awareness and devotion actually manifest in and are based on a disregard for others and an unwillingness to become informed about let alone act in the cause of the issues and problems facing others. And it is instead a devotion to self, as the desire to avoid the truth that our world is unpredictable and not controlled, and so to avoid the confusion, stress, and pain associated with living in such a world. Finally, this believer portrays herself as serving God just as well, if not better, than others. Yet in holding a belief that requires no corroboration, reevaluation, or explanation, and that is self-justifying, all again based on the circular logic of presupposing rather than proving the truth of her Bible reading, this believer completely immunizes herself from critique. In being cut off from and superior to all other perspectives, she serves and values only herself. 
Yet to the degree that this view runs counter to both biblical evidence and human experience, those on the outside see the result as a grand delusion, a facade, created to allow the holder to believe that she or he is, quote, devoted to God and others, end quote, and doing the right thing, when in reality, she is sidestepping her obligations, both as a Christian and as a human being, and doing so for her own benefit. In other words, the motivation for holding this belief is based entirely on the supposed benefits that it confers to the holder, rather than on any value inherent to the belief itself, such as its truthfulness, its conformity with other beliefs, its alignment with our core values, or how it makes sense of what was previously misunderstood or incomprehensible. Stated differently, the motivation for holding such a belief is pragmatism, in that it makes the holder's life much more convenient. It does so because it allows, and even mandates, that Christians should not be concerned with the events in their world, but instead surrender their worries about the world to God, even as they accept that everything is how God wishes it to be. The implication of this convenience-through-acceptance approach is that such Christians develop no particular skills, dispositions, or knowledge to assess and respond to these concerns. Second, however, the motivation for holding this belief is also highly self-focused or narcissistic, for by disregarding the possibility that anything is not as it should be, or that it is the way it is, however bad, because God just wants it that way, they need never allow the situations and circumstances of their world to impact their time or their priorities, and so need never work hard and risk failure in order wholeheartedly to confront negative situations and seek better outcomes, for others or even themselves. Instead, the holder can remain isolated from external needs and only focused on internal, personal, and often spiritual goals. In the same way that we can see how the holder of the belief is served by holding it, it is also the case that in key ways the community, or at least significant portions of it, are served by someone holding, and particularly defending, this belief. This relates to my earlier point, that where self-deceit is present, it is typically pervasive. In this way, as much of the community as holds such a belief is served by every individual who holds this view particularly when the belief is called into question and so must be defended. For while this belief is actually held because of its usefulness, the tacit claim within such self-deceitful contexts is always that it is held for its truthfulness. The issue, of course, is that we have shown that such a belief is actually false. As a result, the truthfulness that is claimed about such beliefs reflects not biblical standards, but those, perhaps, of American neopragmatist philosopher Richard Rorty, when he wrote that, quote, truth is what your colleagues let you get away with, end quote. In this case, and with a slight twist, we could say that truth is what your community around you tacitly endorses and or refuses to criticize. Returning to our analysis... By looking at the surface motivations and the answers to our questions, we can make informed speculations about the deeper motives of those who hold such a belief. Recalling from last episode, the deeper motivation for holding a belief is that its supposed benefits offset related but hidden deficits in the holder's life relative to the content of the belief. In this case, a Christian holds the false belief that God is always in control 
or that God's will is always being done, because it addresses or takes care of the reality that, at a deeper level, this person feels overwhelmed and out of control by how confusing, complicated, and painful a world without such control would be. Further, a Christian also holds this false belief because it addresses or takes care of the holder's fear that God is not really sovereign, and so not really God, if God is not always in control. The deeper motivation, then, is the desperate need to believe that the monumental tasks of understanding the world's problems, managing their complexity, and mending their resulting brokenness is someone else's responsibility, not mine. The deeper motivation is also the driving need to avoid the daunting task of understanding and then coming to terms with the complex relationship between God's sovereignty and God's action in the world. So desperate and driving, in fact, are these needs that the person is an easy target for and or very willing to be co-opted by self-deceit in order to create a facade of herself that her trust in God results in being both better by being clear and focused as a Christian and more satisfied by being more confident and serene through surrendering her concerns about the world's problems to God's sovereign control than is the case in reality. Ultimately, Christian beliefs such as this and those that I presented last episode can only be recognized as faulty once the other reason for holding them is identified and revealed for what it truly is not a reason based on fact, or an opinion based on preference, or even whim, but a stratagem, a cunning ploy, designed to promote the true goal of maximizing personal gain and or minimizing personal loss. Let me repeat that. This is really important. Beliefs such as this, and those I presented last episode, can only be recognized as faulty once the other reason for holding them is identified and revealed for what it truly is. Not a reason based on fact, or an opinion, based on preference, or even a whim, but a stratagem, a cunning ploy, designed to promote the true goal of maximizing personal gain and minimizing personal loss, and all of it kept unconsciously from ourselves. So recognizing these beliefs as faulty requires that the holder comes face to face with the self-deceit that propagates them and eventually the deeper fears that underlie them. Only by developing such self-awareness can evangelicals eschew beliefs that are based on usefulness in favor of those that are based on truthfulness and avoid being selfishly self-serving and instead authentically serve God, others, and themselves. My next examples are more specific and demonstrate how self-deceit prompts its participants to maintain and defend the status quo, to maintain in an unexamined and particularly unchallenged way the environments that allow the self-deceit to exist and be perpetuated. These examples likewise focus on the likelihood that, where self-deceit is present, it is pervasive. In this episode, I will provide one example that focuses on preserving the status quo. In the next episode, I'll provide the remaining three or four examples. This next example occurs within a church that is affirmation-focused, with tendencies towards what could be called radical affirmation, which is the acceptance without critique 
of any and all people, regardless of belief, background, philosophy, etc. Within an affirmation-focused context, there is, however, one thing that is unacceptable and cannot be affirmed. That thing is critique itself, and even more so, those who understand their role within the church body as examining the church and its practices critically. As an aside, I will note that critique-focused churches, or those that tend towards radical critique, while taking the opposite approach, are just as likely to cultivate practices and outcomes influenced by self-deceit, and just as unlikely as their affirming counterparts to detect the existence and effects of this self-deceit, let alone to act capably against them. Both, in other words, represent extremes that are inimical to human flourishing and to healthy Christian living, and both should be avoided. My third example occurred when, after nearly two years of teaching within the church that I've just described, I came to the realization that my role of offering critical examination and the church's focus of radical affirmation were in such strict opposition that there was simply no place in this church for me, or anyone, to exercise such a role. I decided the best course of action was to take a leave of absence from the community. Yet when I explained all of this to the minister and stated my need to explain to the congregation my reason for taking an absence from the community, and offered my view that my explanation and any ensuing discussion might act as a catalyst for discussion and growth in the community, the minister was unwilling to allow it because it risked, as he said, quote, confusing any visitors, end quote. Being generous, there were perhaps three visitors that day. Further, how much is confusion really a risk when explanation would be provided? And if needed, visitors could easily be approached with the offer of more information. So this decision seems at odds with the minister's goal of community growth and unnecessary in light of the situation, if not completely bizarre. When we see a decision or action that seems discordant with the circumstances at play or the values of the participants, it's a good bet that assessing the matter from the perspective of self-deceit will be informative. Assessing an action or situation from the perspective of self-deceit is similar to assessing a belief. Once again, the aim is to reveal the hidden reasons or motives for the action. To do so, we ask such questions as, 1. What are the benefits of this course of action? 2. Who or what is served or what needs or concerns are met by taking such an action? And 3. What is the result of this action from the perspective of the holder versus the perspective of others? The benefits of this action are that the church and the minister can focus on their strengths and continue doing what they do best, focusing on affirmation without being distracted or burdened by the complexities, intellectual, relational, or emotional, of dealing with critique, let alone critique on a potentially church-wide basis. In short, the key benefit of this action is what it gives by virtue of what it avoids. In other words, it defers or annuls the possibility of change perceived as harmful or at least threatening. The overt logic of such an action is predicated upon viewing the church's current culture and character as so superior in quality that any possible improvement to this culture and character could only be minor. As a consequence, embracing a potentially harmful action to achieve a small gain is simply not worth the, worth the risk. 
when we ask what or who is served by a particular decision or action that seems odd, out of place, or bizarre. Answering this often involves considering factors that may seem external to the specifics of the situation, but which can prove decisive. A good place to start is considering the background of the people involved and how this background connects with the setting or situation at hand. In this case, this is a small community with a single church, and the minister has chosen to retire in the community shortly. So on the one hand, the community itself is served by having its solidarity preserved, because this action averts a situation that is potentially too difficult for the church to handle. On the other hand, the minister is served, because he is able to preserve relationships with both his parishioners and his neighbors. The result for the minister is that he can view himself as having maintained control and predictability of a Sunday service that might otherwise have become less controlled, or even uncontrolled and unpredictable. The result for the community is that its members can continue to perceive themselves and their community in a fair light, without the threat of having to look more deeply at their lives as Christians or their practices as a church. Yet the result from the outside is that the status quo is not threatened or even evaluated. Thus the motivation for taking such an action is that it protects the church's affirmation-focused status quo, and in doing so, It protects its members from the risk that accepting the implicit challenge of self-reflection that critique requires would result either in their morality and or their identity being impugned. Which, if you recall from the previous episodes, are the two aspects of personhood that self-deceit acts falsely to promote and furtively to protect. Identity and morality. Yet while the community itself benefits by being spared the difficult task and potentially negative implications of self-examination, this is not simply a gift from the minister to the community. On the contrary, the minister is himself part of this very community, and so, in sparing the community from the need to face hard questions, the minister also benefits by sparing himself from having to ask how, and how much, his leadership, or lack thereof, has contributed to the community's failings. Recalling again from previous episodes, the deeper motivation for holding a belief is that its supposed benefits offset related but hidden deficits in the holder's life relative to the content of the belief. In the context of actions rather than beliefs, the deeper motivation for an action is that its supposed benefits offset related but hidden deficits in the holder's life relative to the aim or effect of the action. In this case, then, the deeper motivation for both the action by the minister and its tacit promotion by the community is the need to see one's community as good, or at least good enough, in order not to recognize, and so not to be held responsible for, the degree to which the holder has created and or is maintaining a community that is less virtuous and less valid than it should be. So it's the need not to recognize, and so not to be held responsible, for the degree to which the holder has created and or is maintaining a community that is less virtuous and less valid than it should be. In this way, a self-deceit-aware approach leads us to wonder if perhaps the real risk, rather than the risk of confusing visitors, was what might occur if the minister allowed a challenge to the church, both the risk to the community and to the minister. For the community, the more likely risk is facing the possibility 
that the current culture and character of their church is not oriented towards serving God and welcoming others, but to serving themselves. By giving the veneer of piety and good Christian service, while in reality acting to shelter them from any form of critical assessment. For the minister, the more likely risk is exposing his lack of skill and or courage to face a new and potentially risky situation that his very leadership style, being heavily affirmation-focused, has not prepared him for. And if such a situation should go poorly, perhaps the more likely risks even include the minister's community standing or his livelihood being threatened. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangling Christianity podcast. A summary and resources for this episode are at our website, untanglingchristianity.com. If you'd like to join our private Facebook group or reach us by email, Send your requests, questions, or even a simple hello to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is provided by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>